Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. This week, I chat with Nick Rees, who is a sports physiotherapist based in Melbourne. Throughout the episode, we chat through Nick's background and journey with physiotherapy and sports, the importance of an empowering narrative and mindset in injury rehab. We dig into running mechanics and performance and how footwear can affect this, as well as the concept of load management and the foundations for maximizing recovery. This week's episode is brought to you by TFC Courses. After touring our feet balance and play workshop across Australia over the past 12 months, we wanted to turn it into a digital resource so that anyone who couldn't make it along to our in-person events could learn and play from home. If you've already completed the Foot Collective's workshop 1.0, there is still plenty of value in our updated version. With more than three hours of content covering crucial theory on feet and footwear, balance, play, breath and ground living, plus simple ways to assess your function and restore your feet and lower bodies from the ground up. This course is designed for people of all ages and movement abilities, and we've even included some bonus training videos where James takes you through some guided routines to work on your feet, ankles, knees, and hips. The course is just $42, and if you use the discount code 10OFF at checkout, you can save 10%. To check it out and use that code, head to the link in our show notes. All right, so Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, mate. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. I've been uh, been looking forward to this chat. It's been a bit of a long time coming, and we uh, we originally connected through Instagram, I guess, and and you were sort of connected with some of the foot nerds down there as well. I think is that right? Yeah, I used to work with Tom Davy. That's and right. Yeah, Andy, yeah, yeah. Andy Bryant, um, and I've yeah. Most of my TFC connections would be through Instagram, but yeah, yeah. Um, like I guess the Melbourne barefoot community is pretty strong. So yeah, it really yeah. is. Melbourne is always seems to be like the hotspot for if we come down and do um, workshops or seminars or anything. They usually sell out the most at Melbourne in Melbourne, and um, everyone seems to be a lot. Well, maybe not a lot more, but everyone seems to be pretty excited about it down there. And um, yeah, I always love visiting. So hopefully, it won't be too long before I can visit again. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, let's hope. Lockdowns and border closures don't last too much longer. Yeah, and um, it'd be good to connect in person as well because obviously, well, this is the first time we've really chatted face-to-face, I think, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, which is cool, yeah. I, I do like Instagram, how it, I mean, it has its its issues, I suppose, but um, <clears throat> being able to connect with a lot of like-minded people all throughout the the space and other pe- people that you wouldn't usually connect with, I think is a really powerful powerful thing that Instagram sort of provides to society. So you're, uh, you're obviously a very like-minded um, physio and just, you know, have a lot of um, similar beliefs around movement and feet and, and all of that. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into it all. Um, but usually I just like to start the podcast with just getting a bit of background about yourself and what you do, why you do it. And um, we just roll from there. Sounds good. So, yeah, I've been a physio for 12 years now. Um, I got into physio through playing sport. Um, I was lucky enough to play sport as a teenager at, at a level where we used to travel with physios and I was kind of like, oh, this is great. This is work. It's helping people. It's sport, travel. Um, and so um, that's why I guess I got into the profession. Um, now I work as a sports physio. Um, I work in private practice at a clinic in Melbourne called Melbourne CBD Physio. And then I also work in sport. So I work for Hockey Victoria. Um, right. I'm the head physio yeah. for the Victorian men's hockey team, right. which is called Hockey Club Melbourne. Um, and I guess 
clinically, hockey's a running sport. Um, I see a lot of runners and that has led me to go down the foot health path. Um, mm-hmm. What's the best I can do for my the runners that I treat, for the athletes I work with. And then I think outside of that, like unknowingly, I, I was just a barefoot kid. Um, I was a total beach rat when I was a kid. And yeah. um, so I was always barefoot. I would like challenge myself to get through a whole day barefoot. Like it was hot in summer, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's a challenge um, in Australia. <laughs> yeah, even like like when I was a kid, I remember um, my mum letting the whole family know. She was like, hey, I've had the carpets cleaned. Everyone, can you take your shoes off when you get to the house? And then she was like, Nick, can you put some shoes on because your feet are always so dirty kind of thing. So yeah. like I just kind of was always barefoot and nothing to do with foot health or anything like that it was just how I like to be. Yeah. So that's kind of um, I think what helped lend me um, towards being um more barefoot orientated as a therapist um and then i think from that it brings in other um movement attributes um with i guess general movement variability and movement health and and that sort of thing so mm-hmm. yeah i i guess i dabble in a few different things but ultimately for me it's mainly about sport yeah yeah and you you play hockey yourself hey do you or you yeah. play yeah 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 yeah, so I still play. I'm definitely like in the has-been category um, okay. <laughs> of hockey. Don't play as seriously as I used to. Um, but it's great working. Like I, it was hockey that I used to um, travel with and it's great working um, with guys that are sort of coming through where I used to be and then even at a much higher level than I've ever played. So, um, yeah, I think I've um, seen both sides of the coin from that sport, which is great. Yeah, and so with physio, you are primarily seeing sports people or only sports people primarily definitely still see general population is the kind of term that gets used but um yeah definitely see anyone that wants to come through the door um but a lot of what i do is working with recreational through to elite athletes yeah 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 and um what do you find out of interest that is the biggest differences like uh between seeing athletes and general population like do you find uh i know when i was working as a physio and seeing clients then generally i think athletes will stick uh it's probably a bit too that's probably talking too generally but athletes uh at least they have a specific goal in mind like they want to get back to their sport or something like that whereas i've found um people in the sort of quote-unquote general population um, you sort of really had to work with them to figure out what kind of functional goal they're working towards other than just, I want to be out of pain. Um, yeah. What have you found with that, with sports people? Yeah, I think it's funny. There are some really good athletes that aren't as motivated to do mm. rehab as maybe someone from the general public. Um, but I think the goals are different. Um, maybe one way to answer it might be, what's the difference between say general physio and, and sports physio? Cause it, you're always should be goal focused. Um, mm, but mm. I think performance in the athletes is the main thing. So yeah. to some extent it's about winning the game or winning the race or running a PB or whatever it is. Um, whereas maybe for the general public, it's more being comfortable doing the things that you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. So so with the athletes, it might be, okay, like the grand finals in two weeks, I've just hurt myself. 
what can I do to get ready for that grand final in two weeks? Whereas yeah. um, yesterday I saw, I saw a runner who's, you know, he's struggled with pain for six, eight months and he's happy to go really slow because he just wants to get there yeah. in the end. He doesn't matter. He doesn't mind if it takes two weeks or six months, as long as mm. we get there in a really good way. So mm. it's, it's the goals are just a bit different. Um, for him, it's, I, I just want to ultimately be able to run how I want to run. Whereas for, the guy who who's got the grand final in two weeks, it's I want to win the premiership in this timely manner. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, just yeah. it's it's just different in that regard, and that's what I think. That's one of the reasons I well, love it because, um, I've I've been an athlete where you had that real focus like that, and I really enjoy that timely nature of it. You know, the kind of pressure um, of we've got to get this athlete right as soon as possible. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that kind of pressure. I know for myself as a physio, the more the more injuries that I'd had and and recovered from and had experience with personally, then I found the the more I was able to help other people. Have you had your fair share of injuries, and has that sort of shaped your physio practice much, or what, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, definitely. Someone asked me on an Instagram um, Q and A couple of months ago like what injuries have I had and I started rattling them off and I was like oh geez I've had a lot of injuries um <laughs> I think I think my first sort of major injury that affected anything was uh when I was 15 we were playing at the national championships and I hurt my back and uh I missed a couple of games of that championship and I ended up playing the final um but I was sort of patched through to get through to that and that was that was probably at that age where I started to want to be a physio um but i've had i've had ankle injuries i've had ankle sprains on both sides i had foot surgery um i've had like like hamstring strain groin injuries a few back injuries yeah i've definitely had my fair share um and then definitely being in that rehab i've not done my rehab well at times i've been really good <laughs> yeah um, same rehabber at times i think every physio probably um has to admit to that one but like i think that shapes me because i understand people who don't do their rehab like it's hard it's um time consuming it's boring it's frustrating um you just want to be out there say if it's team sport you know your teammates are playing and you can't um so yeah i, I definitely think it helps shape you as a um, a rehab professional if, if you've been through injury. Um, and it's, it's actually really interesting sure. to see athletes who've never had an injury before. Um, like they don't know what to do after they've been injured. Mm. They don't know where to start. They've never been to a physio before, for example, whereas someone who's had a few injuries kind of, yeah. I also think it, it shapes you as an athlete. Um, you learn resilience, you learn um, setbacks, all those kind of things. Um, so it's, Absolutely, like, I think it's yeah. good for your development as a, as a person. I know it's a bit cliched, but it's, it's true. No, it is. It, it is very true. And, and I think for myself, yeah, some of my biggest periods of growth was rehabbing from injuries. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's, it's the biggest opportunity to improve yourself as an athlete because an injury, I mean, obviously some of them are just sort of random contact injuries where you get, you know, someone, you know, flies into you and you tear your ACL or something like that, where it's just one of those things that you couldn't necessarily prevent. But uh, often an, an injury um, 
is a sign that you weren't strong in that range of motion or you were lacking some kind of um, um, characteristic or, you know, strength or flexibility or something that was limiting your performance as well. And so often injury mm. rehab can be the best um, conduit for improving performance. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things I like to say to people, especially say younger athletes like teenagers, early 20s, is by the time we're done with rehab, you'll be a better athlete than you were before. Um, yeah. And you've got time to address things that maybe wouldn't have been focused on or maybe because – you know, you're going through your strength and power testing, that sort of thing. You actually uncover things that might not have been picked up mm-hmm. before. You can work on movement patterns. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's a chance to reset and, um, and set up the rest of your athletic career, whether that's as a recreational athlete or, you know, wanting to be professional, that sort of thing. You get, you get a chance to focus on things that you might not otherwise not. Um, For sure. So, yeah, it can, it can be a, a real growth thing and like it's quite philosophical but i think we grow the most in the hardest times um yeah. and and like injury is one of them so yeah i totally agree yeah and mindset is such an important thing when when well for anything in life but especially with those challenging situations and things like injuries where the mindset you take towards the rehab or towards the injury literally makes all the difference to your outcome like you could view the injury as like oh no i've like done my ACL, I'm ruined, you know, I, I know all these people who haven't gone back after ACL or whatever, um, or X, Y, Z, you can get, you can get down in the dumps, um, about your injury and then that will shape the trajectory you go down. And there are a heap of people who've, you know, their, their careers have been ended by injuries and then they end up doing something they don't like and, you know, the sort of spiral kind of story, but there's also plenty of stories of people who've done the opposite and, you know, successfully rehabbed a really tough injury and gotten back and played better than ever. And and if you sort of focus on more of the success stories and and I think working with someone you you know and trust um, is huge as well. And and getting guidance um, it, it can be the the best thing for you. So it's uh, it's that that mindset is really key. Yeah, and I think um, it, it builds a team around you, right? So you, you have a physio, you might also be seeing a sports doctor you're seeing say a myotherapist or a massage therapist you've got a um, strength and conditioning coach something like that and you build a real support team and then you can draw on those um, that support team when you need it in the future um, yeah and I, I think that builds your confidence in yourself <laughs> as well you know what if, if something goes wrong I know who I'm going to call um, yeah yeah exactly so yeah that injury experience can be can be devastating but but also, um, I think it's um, you can you can grow out of it. So yeah, and I think that's really cool as as a physio, um, and you would have seen this yourself when you're working as well. Like you're you're part of that journey. Um, yeah, and people are people are really grateful um, for for being there through like a really tough time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I'm I'm always interested with physios. Like you said, you've been in the industry, I suppose, or been practicing for twelve years. Um, I'm always interested in how people's practice has evolved over that time because obviously I guess at uni you probably would have been taught I mean fairly similar things to what I was taught but there's probably about a I don't know like a six seven year difference there Um, so maybe some differences in what you've been taught at uni but you know like were there any 
courses that really shaped your practice or anything that you've sort of like any paths that you've gone down in the physio world? Cause it's a very big world. Um, yeah. Anything that's sort of really stuck out to you as like major turning points or um, epiphanies or anything like that in terms of your physio practice? Yeah, I think, um, I think for me, it's, I actually think we're on the cusp of uh, a big shift in the physio game and, and sure. really about uh, on the technology that we can use. Um, so, you know, when I went through uni, it's like strength testing is you push against their leg extension yeah. um, while they're leg extending and you get a manual muscle test and it's, you know, one through to five out of five and that's your strength testing and that kind of thing. Whereas now, you know, we, we can tell you exactly how much force you can push in that movement. And um, we've got equipment that just tells us so much information um, about forces, rate of force development, landing symmetries between one side and the other, ability to create propulsion, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I think the next, say, 10 maybe even 15 years, we're going to have a, a big shift in physio. So I think for me that coming mm-hmm. on board is like, I'm so excited about the next part. Um, and I think I think for me, I actually don't know that we do rehab that well. Um, nah. like, yeah, in general. We like to think we do, but in general, it's not done that well. Um, and I think we're going to see some physios and some clinics really leap ahead Um of that. And so, yeah, for me, I think that big shift has been that kind of technology coming on board um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, just being able to offer a product um, in terms of a rehabilitation that's far superior to what we we used to be able to offer. Um, And, you know, like I think, I think the elite world gets that stuff sooner depending on which sport you're in and the the finances Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, But we're offering that at, at a general anyone can come in and use that kind of um, technology now, which is really cool. So I think, um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily been a course that I did or um, one moment, but I just think like the last few years um, that for me is really like, I'm, I'm such a physio nerd these days. Like I love it. Um, my partner's always like, Oh, you're just so in love with being a physio. I'm like, yeah, I am because it's so cool. Like, what we're doing is amazing, and um, there's lots of really cool research coming out. So, yeah, I think the next the next part's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. There's there is a major shift happening, getting much more specific with strength testing and and different performance tests that we really didn't even touch at all in uni you know we're, I do remember going through the sort of grade one to five muscle test and and uh, ma- yeah manual muscle testing and um, I mean as as a general sort of overlook I think it can be helpful in some context but yeah when you're talking about um, sport and especially sort of higher level elite sport then getting a lot more detailed and nuanced on the test makes a lot of sense and um, I think the general shift I suppose that I've seen in physio is a much bigger focus on active approaches, things like strength training, mobility training, um, things that empower the client to take more control of their own rehab uh, as opposed to relying on a physio or a chiro or, you know, whoever to sort of keep fixing them when things go wrong. And um, 
I'm interested if, you know, if, if you like for myself, I started off in a very manual therapy sort of focused clinic and over time with what I was reading and the movement and training that I was doing, I sort of started transitioning to a, a lot more of a movement based approach. Is that kind of been a similar journey for you? Have you gone, you know, have you, um, started with like mostly manual therapy and transitioned fully over sort of approach with that? Yeah, I think um, I think the exercise side of physio doesn't get taught very well in undergrad yeah. courses. Um, yeah, I did about six and, months, like, and that was still not very well taught. Yeah, like for us, the first month of first year was on massage, um, yeah. and and I understand that, like, we were starting to learn anatomy then. It's, it, massage is probably something you can teach without lots of other background knowledge while you're, you're also doing your um anatomy and that kind of thing but from a physio skills perspective the first thing we look with massage and maybe that's a little bit sort of ironic because um physio is going to, to less manual therapy i i'm a big believer in manual therapy i think there's a lot of benefits for manual therapy in the right mm-hmm. way at the right time and i think for me the biggest thing is um fr- how you frame it um like if, For sure. if I say to someone, sure. me doing this is going to fix you, then that's what they think they're coming there for. Whereas, you know, if I say to someone, I'm going to do this technique to get some extra ankle range of motion, then we're going to go and do some exercises that will help, say, calf strength um, because your calf's getting tired, therefore it's tightening up and therefore you're, you're ending up with an anterior impingement. They're thinking, okay, he's just helping me get some more range, but I've got to go and do this rehab myself. So yeah. It's really around how you frame it, how you educate um, the conversations that you're having with the person that you're working with. Um, but yeah, I, I'm lucky. I probably the last few clinics, at least, especially that I've worked at, it's it, it's a real exercise focus, lots of movement. Um, you know, um, I, I I almost think that um, the rehab world has gone in some areas too far to only exercise. And I think there's a big mm. role um, for manual therapy and hands-on techniques um, in the sports world. You know, like that, our example we had earlier from of the athlete for the grand final. Um, yeah. If your grand final's tomorrow and you want to feel better, I'm yeah. reaching for the, the manual therapy, right? Um, we haven't got six months to do a, a good exercise regime in, or, you know, even six weeks, we've got one day. Um, mm. But but I definitely think that empowerment that you're part of the process, you, you need to go home and do this sort of work, um, come into the gym and do it with us. That sort of thing is um, absolutely the right approach. And I think um, if you get the right balance between those two, then you, you end up with the, the best treatment you can get. Yeah, I think, and that's pretty much where I ended up as well, because when I first started um, practicing, then I learned uh, because the the clinic I was at was very manual therapy based. I don't know if you've heard of Ridgeway Method. Um, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. met i met Michael Ridgeway. He came down. And oh, have you? Spoke to a clinic that I um, worked at. Um, oh, the right. There the you go. Kind of interested in in his approach. So yeah, yeah. I haven't. Yeah, so I, yeah, I haven't touched it for a few years, but it, yeah, maybe like five years ago, I learned a bit about him. Yeah, so I worked for him at at Baruna, what was then Baruna Physio, and. Um, yeah, like, a, I mean, 
it's it's a very it's a big oversimplification to just say it's a manual therapy based approach but we did practice primarily with manual therapy very um, much yeah and uh you know i i could i could delve into the whole concept around ridgeway method but the point is is that uh we could get some amazing results in sessions with, with manual therapy. Like it is, it is pretty crazy what a good manual treatment can do in terms of increasing range of motion and and modifying symptoms. And that can be very powerful for some people. Um, And I guess my issue was that I didn't feel like I was providing people with enough, like I kind of knew, oh, they should probably do these exercises, but the bulk of the session was on manual therapy and the exercises were sort of like more of the afterthought. Mm -hmm. Whereas the approach that you just talked about, which pretty much was what I ended up coming to was that we're going to spend a little bit of time on manual therapy if it's relevant, if it's sort of indicated, I suppose. And then we're going to like immediately follow that up with the exercise or you know whatever the movement or the functional task that is relevant and we're going to go through that and that is sort of the bulk of the session um and obviously that that's going to depend on the individual and the context as well but when you prioritize it in the session and go this is what we're really after we're using the manual manual therapy to facilitate this but this is the thing that we're after and this is the thing that you need to be doing then i think that can make all the difference because i would find that even if i was like oh it's really important to do your exercises if people got the message in the session that the manual therapy was the thing that was doing the fixing, then that's kind of what they would end up relying on versus mm. sort of really experiencing um, the, I guess, the the functional difference in the session. Um, yeah. And that, that's not to say that I'm not trying to paint Ridgeway Method in a, in a um, poor light. It's probably just the way I was practicing Ridgeway Method at the time with my own skills and, and, and everything. Um, but I did find with that more of a hybrid approach, I could get, I could sort of see people for less sessions. They would end up with generally with a better outcome and, um, it would be longer lasting. Um, so it's a, it's a, it is an important, I think, to discuss though, in terms of when we talk about the shift in physio, because there is such a, yeah, I think you're right. Like the pendulum swinging in the other direction and possibly has swung mm. a little too far in terms of ev- like not everyone, but a lot of people, you know, there's some big, vo- big voices out there like Adam Meekins and stuff, you know, who was saying you should never, never use manual therapy, you know, and, and things like this that I think can confuse, confuse things. But um, there, I, I do believe that there is a role for it um, in the right context. And, and like you said, with the right narrative and sort of education around it. Yeah, I I think there's two reasons to use manual therapy. And the first one's symptom modification. Yeah. So this person's got some symptoms, let's reduce their symptoms. And I would basket that in the same place as foam rolling, um, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of other treatment modalities that um, they've got their time and their place. Yeah. Like I'm a big believer in symptom modifiers. If someone needs like and and I think especially early on in a rehab I want like a wow moment I want someone to be like oh wow I feel so much better because yeah. in that moment they buy in they go mm-hmm. Nick knows how to help me I'm feeling better than I was half an hour ago 10 minutes ago whatever it is and then okay Nick's asked me to do this rehab plan I'm going to follow it yeah and that I think that's really important because the the person or the athlete needs to buy into what you're 
getting them to do. Um, 100%. Yeah. And so otherwise they'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like they, and, and they need to trust the process because that way, you know, they're going to they're gonna get the outcome that they want and you want them to get. The second reason for manual therapy for me is to progress treatment along. Mm. So like if we use our example of anterior impingement of the ankle, we can get there just through exercise. But I think I can usually get there faster doing some manual therapy and then exercise. Yeah. So um, it's like the, I think they're two different camps, right? One of them is a symptom modifier, which is just let's feel better. And then mm-hmm. the other one's let's progress along our rehab path. So I, ha- I like it's not very often, but every now and then I'll see someone two, three times a week because yeah. to get along, like we're getting those jumps along um, with with rehab because of manual therapy in that in yeah. that situation. Um, whereas the symptom modifier, like um, I think we can get that in other ways at home where they don't mm. need to be coming in to see me. Yeah, um, yeah. So and then and then I guess I guess maybe a third one. It's probably similar to symptom modification, but recovery. So manual therapy can like massage is a recovery modality and tool. So mm, mm. Um, if we're if we're playing a tournament, we're playing eight games in two weeks. It's really not about um, anything other than just recovering between the games. And so manual yeah. therapy is a really helpful um, tool in that situation. But yeah, I th- like I, I think the pendulum for some people has maybe swung too far, but it'll swing back, right? Everything regresses to the mean. Um, yeah, true. So, yeah, we've gone from um, physios just <laughs> being manual therapists to exercises coming more and more. And that's part of that big shift that we were talking about in physio. Like I think um, some people at physios are almost calling themselves more rehab professionals or sports rehabilitation therapists, that kind of thing. And I think that's, yeah. that's probably getting the right balance there. For sure. And um, you mentioned obviously you that you treat a lot of hockey players and you're the physio for Victorian men's team. And uh, there's a lot of running involved and, uh, and you've got a number of great posts on running um, on your Instagram as well. And uh, I just thought it'd be interesting to chat about like sort of how you're thinking about running in terms of, um, you know, like all of the sort of buzzwords i suppose around biomechanics and cadence and heel strike versus forefoot strike and um you know all of that yeah let's open up the can <laughs> let's, of let's do it um so yeah from a from a running technique perspective um i'm a big believer that we can modify technique and improve running technique um and while there's not there's definitely not a every runner should look like this um, so there's certain methods of running technique out there that are, you know, you really look for these certain characteristics, um, you, you can modify and improve, improve running. And I think, unfortunately, this is not done very well in general. Um, and a lot of the, the running technique that's done focuses on outcomes. So if we think of running, it, it is a movement pattern just the same way as squat, a deadlift, um, throwing, throwing is a movement pattern. Running is, is a movement pattern. Um, and you can change that movement pattern. Now the last parts of the movement pattern are what happens at the ground. Mm -hmm. So with your feet, um, 
And a lot of the running technique that's done focuses on what's happening in the lower leg um, and the foot. So shortening the step, increasing the cadence, um, where you land on your foot. That's the last part of the running technique. And, And they're really an outcome. So rather than modifying the outcome, we should modify the beginning of the running technique and then flow down towards what's happening at the ground. Um, so like the example I like to use is a tennis stroke. Are we just going to start by modifying what's happening at the hand? No, we're going to modify what's happening at the body. And that like tennis really comes from the legs through to the hips, the trunk, mm-hmm. shoulder, um, hand. So the outcome is the tennis stroke, but actually the movement pattern um, is coming from further in the body. So cadence for me, for example, you you mentioned, I think cadence is completely irrelevant. Um, Mm -hmm. We know for every inch of height extra that your cadence drops by three. When you run faster, your cadence goes higher. When you run slower, it goes lower. As you get fatigued, it tends to drop a little bit. It changes from what surface you're running on. It changes from incline, decline, flat. Um, so cadence is so variable within the one runner that I, I just don't think we can find um, like a way to use cadence and say you should run at this cadence because it's going to change yeah. consistently throughout a run. Mm-hmm. Cadence is absolutely an outcome. It's a score that comes as a product of the movement pattern of running. Um, and cadence, even in, in a lot of research, cadence gets used to modify running technique. Whereas I'm a big believer, let's modify the movement pattern. And then the cadence just takes care of itself. You'll just run at the cadence that you, you run at when you're running at that speed. Um, you'll even change your cadence if you change your shoes um, mm. in some, some situations. So I think cadence is kind of actually irrelevant. I don't track it. I don't like if I've got someone that we're doing running technique where I don't look at their cadence at all. Um, But heaps of the research is, you know, around increasing cadence. Um, Why is that? Do you think? I think because it's something that you can do easily. You can like my watch tells me what my cadence is. I can go, I'm running in a cadence of 165. Okay. I can modify that easily. Um, Yeah. Whereas actually cueing a movement change um, is is probably more difficult and much more individualized rather than um, that. And like, I think with cadence, if you run at a higher cadence, you've got less time to overstride, which is where the foot lands um, out in front of the body. You don't have the time to do that because you're running at a higher cadence. So you might reduce someone's pain by doing that because they're not overstriding. So they're not overloading structures with the ground reaction forces, but actually um, we're not improving the movement pattern. We're just changing what's happening really at the lower leg. Yeah. Yeah. With, and Oh, sorry, sorry. Go on. Yeah. You asked about strike patterns. Mm. Um, this is an interesting one. So there's a lot of research that shows um, heel striking mid to forefoot striking, no change in injury rates, no change in sort of performance outcomes um, from running. Typically faster runners run on the mid to forefoot. But once again, this is an outcome. It's the very, very last thing that happens, right? Where where we land on the ground. So um, typically I think probably someone who is running in a really good running technique will run further 
forward, you know, mid to forefoot, particularly if they're really fast. Um, if someone comes to me and they're heel striking, I'm not going to change that. I think that's, I actually think that's really mediocre um, running technique advice to change someone what's happening at their foot there. Um, Based on the, in the same light of it being more of an outcome of the exactly. overall movement pattern. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let's happen. Let's change what's happening further up the chain. Um, and then and, it kind of takes care of itself. And what are some of those things that you would tend to focus on up the chain? Yeah. Um, like I think for me, the trunk is the platform of running. And yeah. I, I know this is probably a little bit confusing because clearly the ground is the thing that we run on. Um, but for me, running is the legs driving down into the ground and we're pushing ourselves off the ground to create that propulsion. So the legs have to push off something to drive down into the ground and that's the trunk. So um, looking at trunk position, looking at what's happening with the arms, um, really getting that kind of upper back, lower back, um, pelvis, but yeah, re really looking at the trunk. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, for me, that's the beginning. That's the platform. Yeah. And that, <clears throat> that sort of lines up well from like a developmental point of view, like when we were all developing, we get trunk control and head control first, and then we build out from there. And, um, I think you can, you can often take a very similar approach to rehab and, and get pretty good results with first taking care of the trunk and then, yeah. and then building out sort of the, there's a, um, I guess a quote, I don't actually know what it, who said it, but a phrase like proximal stability for distal mobility. So you get better outcomes distally as in further down or further away from the trunk when you get good stability at the trunk. And a lot, obviously a lot of that has to do with breath control as well and diaphragm function and core control and then glute function and so on. Um, and so I guess I'm interested I mean, this is a this is a conversation that sort of comes up a fair bit because you just mentioned uh, in terms of like heel striking versus midfoot striking. You know, in the research, there's not really a clear picture about how that relates to injury risk and so on. And, and we know that obviously there's so many different variables that come into injury risk and people's experience of pain, um, you know, like load management and um, other psychosocial factors, but. I always like to use the example of say someone who's never worn shoes or like, I feel like the only time someone would really heel strike, especially if they were running on flat ground is if they did have a cushion between their heel and the ground, because it just doesn't feel as good to heel strike when mm -hmm. you don't have a cushion there. Yeah. And what are your thoughts about that in terms of like a, a, a cushioned heel on a shoe allowing a, a heel strike versus um, like, do you find if you get someone to try running barefoot that that immediately changes their technique? And do you, uh, what's your approach with that? Yeah. So I knew, I knew this was going to come up um, and I'm probably a little bit different from some of your other guests and um, some of like the, that's good. The barefoot <laughs> I, I, I like, like hearing some different perspectives. Yeah. So I think for me, what's happening at the foot, foot health, foot function, that kind of thing. Um, it's, you've got to take what's your biggest priority in that moment and that um, situation. So um, I, I agree. I think, I think healed cushion shoes have in a lot of ways caused heel striking. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think they're not the only reason that it's come about. Um, I think uh, for me, like I don't play hockey in a minimalist shoe. Yeah. I play in a hockey shoe. It's got a bit of a heel. It's tapered at the toe box. Like I can feel it because I'm normally in minimalist shoes. Yeah. And I can feel it there, but it's also the shoe that I play hockey the best in. Yeah. If I went to play hockey in, um, in some Vivo barefoot, I'd fall over the first time I went to change direction. Yeah, so. that, that actually happened to me. I played futsal uh, in a pair of Vivos just for like a casual game. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a re- like there is a, there is a function for certain sports-specific shoes. Exactly, yeah. right. And so for me, that's a performance realm. Yeah. And I, I think of running as a performance realm too. So, mm-hmm. so for me, if someone comes in and they run the best in a high-stack shoe with a lot of cushion, you know, whether or not it's a super shoe with carbon plates or something like that, whatever they run the best in, and that will probably mean that their running technique is the best because your shoe will change your running technique. Mm -hmm. Then I think that's great because it's a performance realm. We're there to run the best that we can. Um, So how many hours a week does that person run? probably not many more than 10 hours a week you have to be really really elite to be running more than 10 hours a week and if you think how how much of your time are you on your feet i'd far rather change someone's shoe for their everyday work study casual shoe rather than the running shoe to to go to a more minimalist shoe so i can agree that getting getting the most the shoe that they spend the most amount of time in that's what i'll address first yeah. Um, now I run better in a lower drop shoe, like a, a, an eight, 10 mil shoe. My technique isn't as good as, you know, I run a zero to, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, lower drops actually good, but I'm not running to win gold medals. Yeah. I run to stay fit, to enjoy running, to prepare for hockey. Um, and just cause I enjoy it. So for me, like a super shoe, isn't going to make much sense. Those really high stack um, shoes. Whereas it's, yeah. So I think that that's the top, the toss up for me with running shoes is let's find the shoe that you run the best in, but then the rest of the time, let's make sure we look after your feet. Um, And like, it's, I think it's really interesting. You, you know, the Olympics have been on fairly recently and a lot of the track athletes finish their race, even a shortish race and they take their spikes straight off. Yeah. Um, What I think, would be really interesting to know, and this will come, is if we get those shoes with, say, a wider toe box. Mm-hmm. Now, they're still going to have a heel-to-toe drop. They're still going to have a fair bit of stack to them, especially like the long distance, sort of the Alpha Flies and Vaporfly and Nikes and those kind of super shoes. But it would be interesting to see what would happen if you go a wider toe box. Now you've got more shoe there. Like it's a heavier shoe mm-hmm. inherently because it's wider. Um, but maybe the big toe functions a bit better and you get better propulsion. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. not. So, um, and that might be different for different runners. But um, like I know there's there's soccer boots being designed now that have got a wide toe box. Um, mm, I'm going to get in touch with them because I'm about to start playing a, a sort of yeah. casual casual game and um, I bought some, just some sort of relatively cheap sort of 
typical soccer shoes, I suppose. And um, they're feeling pretty squishy on the yeah. feet, <laughs> especially for me. I'm 95% of the time barefoot or exactly. in barefoot shoes. So yeah. you really feel the difference when you've, when you've transitioned. Yeah. But- yeah. So I, yeah, I think it's that trade off, right? So for someone whose performance isn't their main realm, or maybe even someone who is, maybe they do some of their running in a, in a more min- minimalist shoe. Um, if they're, can handle the capacity and the loads of it. Um, yeah. And then they, they're say faster track sessions and their races, they run in a, um, in a racing shoe, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, I think um, like to sort of answer your question, I think the, the heel strike part of that has definitely been cushioned heeled shoes. Um, but then when it comes to actually selecting shoes for runners and working with them, um, it's what shoe they run best in yeah. for me. Yeah. And <clears throat> do you think on that sort of what shoe they run best in, like I can definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from in terms of um, like a lot of runners don't necessarily want to give up their running volume if they don't have to. And so if it's, cause if you tell someone, oh, you have to switch to this shoe because it's, you know, quote unquote better for you or more natural or whatever, but that means you're going to have to really dial back your uh, volume. You're going to have to sort of change up your technique and, you know, really work a whole heap on calf strength and, you know, different factors that, um, will, will come of this change in footwear. Um, it's not really feasible for a lot of runners to do. And if, if you could solve this, you could solve their issue with a more simple change and they keep running and they're injury free, then it's, you know, much of a muchness kind of. Yeah. Um, but do you think, uh, I don't know where you're at with, in terms of like a, from a biomechanical perspective, like would it be, could they run even better if they did take the time to learn how to load through their midfoot or forefoot and, you know, were happy to dial back their volume and change their footwear? Do you think that would be optimal or do you think it's sort of, again, it kind of doesn't matter like whether the foot does the shock absorption or the cushion of the shoe? So I actually think why not both? Yeah. Like my genuine answer is why not both? Yeah. So if we can get X amount of energy storage and release through the foot, the Achilles, um, and we can also get it from the shoe. Yeah. Hey, that's even better. Um, mm. But it's so individual. Um, I, I think it's sort of, it, it probably comes down to ideology. Yeah. So there are certain practitioners out there that think, running in minimalist shoes, that's natural running. That's how we should run. Um, that's how we were designed to run, so on and so forth. And I think there's an argument for that. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that. Um, like, I don't know how many people had a go at it, but no one's winning gold medals in minimalist shoes. Yeah. They're winning <laughs> super shoes. So I don't know how much that's been tested, but... Um, I think let's up the function of the foot. Like I, I put a poll up on my Instagram recently saying like, do you think strengthening your foot will improve performance in sport and running? And I think 95% of people answered. I like had a lot of responses and 95% of people said yes. Yeah. I agree. I think it should. Mm-hmm. We've got to prove it. But so doing that, and like I'm sure I have fair few, fair few people who are barefooters that follow me. So maybe it's a skewed, um, you know, samples. But I think let's get that, but maybe for that performance realm, the shoe also is helpful because we know yeah. you, 
we know you get benefit from the foam from in certain shoes. We know like you get a little bit from that carbon plate. So um, when it comes to a real performance realm, um, and I think it's up to the individual to decide where that performance sits. I'm not a performance runner myself. Yeah, Like, you know, I'm not running to, like, I don't race much. I, um, yeah, like I'm not trying to win break records or anything like that so it's it's more for enjoyment so for someone like me maybe it's it's less about that shoe and bring the foot function up and that kind of yeah. thing but, yeah and yeah the, the um i guess the other thing that gets discussed is like if you if you have a a cushion say say you jump and land on a cushioned surface you're going to land differently to if it's a hard surface. So if you're Definitely. jumping and landing on a cushion, you you probably be all right to land on your heels because it's just a cushion surface. If it's yeah. a bit of concrete or something, it's not going to feel as good to land on your heels. And yeah. um, I guess it's it's the question of whether the cushioning by allowing a heel strike does that because if you weren't cushioned, then you wouldn't heel strike and you'd be absorbing the loads differently through your feet and, and Achilles and so on. The question is whether the cushion uh, promotes you using a certain pattern that actually isn't optimal for the body in the long term. You might not see a, a, a change uh, in performance or injury in the short term, but over time, does it does it build up? And I mean, to be honest, I'm not fully decided on it that kind of makes sense to me that it that it could be true um but i obviously the research isn't completely um sold on it um but yeah what what do you think or have you explored that much yeah i think if you run with a really good movement pattern you'll end up running mid to four yeah yeah but the change isn't change your heel yeah to mid to four it's change the movement pattern and you'll end up running there yeah i, I like that yeah yeah some of the those high-end super shoes are actually designed to land there they're, yeah. they're designed to land on your mid to four yeah, um, yeah, yeah so the runners with the best running technique will get more out of that shoe than someone who's um landing further back on the foot. yeah yeah i think the other thing is heel striking depending on where it lands but in some ways it's a breaking force mm. and especially heel striking with an overstride um is a breaking force so then we're inefficient because yeah. when we land we break and then we create propulsion again so um once again to be very clear let's not get anyone who listens to this and then decides oh heel striking is bad let's change it yeah to yeah, yeah. Four foot strike change the movement pattern and you'll get the outcome that you want. But um, that that heel strike it, for multiple reasons, um, like go and jump up and down 10 times in bare feet on your heels. It doesn't mm. feel very nice on a hard surface. It doesn't yeah. feel nice. Um, yeah. You can feel the, the shocks through your body and your knees, your hips, your back. So we're not really designed for that. And, and for sure, cushion shoes do let people get away with that. Mm. Um, but I, I still believe, um, and I've sort of tossed and turned over the last few years with this. I still believe that there's a role for cushion shoes in that performance realm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. And I, I really love exploring these topics, especially if, if there is, you know, I don't think we actually think differently about it, but it's sort of getting, 
getting different perspectives and and hearing it uh hearing things sort of spoken about differently i think is really important and and what you what you said which i think is a really great takeaway for people is don't focus so much on the strike because that's the outcome focus on the movement pattern in general and and generally the outcome will happen and yeah it's sort of I think that is that's a really key point and that can be applied to anything besides running as well is just focus on on the pattern in general and and the outcome will follow. Yeah. 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 It's it's like another example golf. You know, golf yeah. the rotation comes all the way through the body. So we wouldn't just start with changing what you're doing at your hands and then the club face. We'd change the the movement through the whole body. Yeah. Um and yeah, any movement pattern. Mm. Um so yeah, it's. Um, I think it's, and, and hopefully, over the next however many years, we see that shift in running. Um, I try not to be too dogmatic, but I think it's really important that we get away from this changing outcomes to changing what's happening through the body. Yeah, and if the and if there's another good takeaway from that whole topic and this conversation is just the the extreme importance of context and nuance and individualization and, and not sort of painting everything with like, Oh, everyone must do this um, immediately or everyone must do that. It's sort of, it really does depend on people's goals around whether it's performance or um, injury prevention or recreation or whatever. And it depends on their context uh, and their history and so many different factors. And, and it's sort of, you can have principles and heuristics that you follow, but it, it, um, in terms of having a one size fits all, it, it doesn't really make sense. And also just the fact that your the shoe you do sport in is probably not as important as the shoe you wear all the time. And, and the, the, the sort of the, the environment of your foot and your body that you spend the most time in is the most important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we we take that with with other realms of sport, right? So, like, you wear a particular set of clothing for the sport that mm. you're going to do, right? Like, um, a, a triathlon suit is really really good for triathlon, but it's not great for hanging out <laughs> with your friends. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. that sounds silly, but it's true. Um, mm. And so I, and I really take that approach um, with shoes and and feet as well. Um, yeah. So. I almost want my athletes to do the best thing they can with their feet when they're not in their performance realm. And then when they're in their performance realm, it's just about performance. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it sounds like a good approach. And uh, the other thing that you, you talk a fair bit about on your Instagram, um, and I love that you get all these topics out and, and your graphics are really cool, by the way, the way you sort of do all your, your Instagram graphics and everything. But uh, just the concept of load management and how that relates to injury, because I think that's something that doesn't get, well, it's probably getting talked a lot about a lot more lately, but I guess in general, traditional physiotherapy, I suppose, doesn't really address load management that much. And yeah, so I, th- I think um, load, the word load can be used in, in, a, in a few contexts. In load management, we talk about the training loads, the amount of, I guess, forces and stress on the body from training. Um, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of data that's come out about load management strategies and um, essentially doing too much too fast 
um, causes an issue and that's one of the big factors in, in injury. Um, capacity, how much we can do, we don't want our load to exceed how much mm-hmm. we can do. Um, so um, it's funny what we were talking about manual therapy earlier and we know what manual therapy kind of can do, but one of the things it can't do is change capacity. Yeah. So you don't get stronger, you don't get better endurance, um, you don't uh, move with a better movement pattern necessarily from manual therapy. Um, so it'll help, uh, but it, it doesn't change that load versus capacity equation. Um, so load management is working out how much am I doing? How much can I do? Is there a discrepancy there in an okay way and there I can do a bit more or is it, am I overloading? Um, and I think um, that's where we see, that's where we see a lot of our injuries coming from. And this is like you said before, not that contact injury that one moment, but um, more the um, sort of things that develop over time, um, gradual onset um, type pains and it's it's often um, a, a load versus capacity discrepancy. Yeah, load management is so complex. Yeah. Like I was I was lucky enough to do a course at the Australian Institute of Sport last year, um, and there was a two hour lecture on injury prevention and another two hour lecture on load management, which I can guarantee you were really fascinating but super dry. <laughs> and um, at the end of that, like four hours, Mick Drew, who was presenting it, was kind of like, it depends. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no perfect, like, yeah. um, he's like, I don't know what I would track, maybe just time doing exercise. But um, I spend a lot of time with athletes um, working out, you know, sort of how much you've been doing, what type of exercise that is. Like one of the National League hockey guys last week had um, sore calves. And um, we're in lockdown in Melbourne and he's not, so they're not playing games on the weekend in their regular club season. And so he's been going for runs on the weekend instead. And for him, his thinking was, oh, well, I, w- I would normally play a game. I'm going for a run. But in a game, you sprint, you walk, you yeah. jog, you, sprint, you walk, you jog, you walk, you sprint. Whereas continuous running of six, eight Ks is very, very different load on the body. And mm-hmm. for him, you know, that's less time. He's probably running you know, a similar-ish distance, but the type of running is very different. So um, this is where load management gets so complex and there's definitely no perfect, but it's a really, really important, um, really, really important thing. Yeah, and it it is really important. And I think at a, a more basic level for people to understand that injuries sort of, for the most part, they don't just pop up out of nowhere for no reason. And a lot of times people do think that they're like, oh yeah, it just happened. Like I went for a run one time and, and this just occurred. And then usually with some questioning, you'll figure out that they actually did a lot more than they usually do. Um, And then once they realize that it, it does sort of, I find it does sort of help them bring some power back of like, oh, I can see how I actually did that. I thought I could just run for 10Ks when I hadn't run for five years or something like that. I thought I could just go out for a run. Um, But they didn't realize that that's not how the body works. Like it needs to adapt to loads over time. And even just at that most basic level, I think can be a really key thing for, for people understanding like the approach you're taking to rehab and, and um, like why you're doing certain things is to increase the load tolerance of that body part. 
or or often to increase the variability um because i think that is another thing that often is missed is you know we can a lot of most people these days are sort of specialists like they're either a, a hockey player or they're a runner or they're a gymnast or they're a tennis player or something and for the rest of their time they unfortunately most people tend to be sedentary and they don't really get much movement variability in their day and then therefore their body gets good at sort of being sit sit down and still and then they go and play something high load over and over again and then they end up with an issue but I think a, a lot of people are missing that nutrient of variability like actually switching up the movements that they're doing frequently and learning different skills and and um I think the body thrives under that kind of variability, but it's something that most people are missing. Yeah, I, I think the body's ability to adapt is incredible. Yeah, it's um, ridiculous. And yeah, I think um, we've just got to give it that time to adapt. So um, there's some really interesting um, MRI scans of like 70 year old triathlete and a 50 year old triathlete and the amount of like their mm, bond. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah. Right. And um, you know, their quality of muscle looks really good and that kind of thing. Cause their body's really well adapted to running and riding essentially that's the, and you know, swimming as well, but the, the loads in swimming are very minimal. Um, but um, if you do more than the body can adapt to, that's when you end up with an issue. Um and, and I think your example is a really good one. I had a guy a few weeks ago who's, he was a runner last year in lockdown. Then he's normally a gym goer. So he didn't, he wasn't running for the first half of this year at all. And then we went into a lockdown and so he started running again. And he was running the same volume that he was running a year ago, 30 Ks a week. So he went from not running right. at all yeah. to running 30 Ks a week. <laughs> and after three and a half weeks, he got sore. Yeah. Um, and in his mind, he's like, well, I'm, access I'm exercising the same amount of time or even less than I normally would in the gym. And it's the same, exactly the same exercise that I was doing a year ago. How come I'm injured? And so we had that conversation. I drew him a graph. I said, zero, 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 30, 30, 30, 30. And <laughs> on those loads on your body, it, it's just too much too soon. Um and so he's got a better understanding of that now. Um, and like I said, I think, like you said, that empowers him. Next time he wants to start running again, you know, if, if he goes back to only um, going to the gym and not running, which um, may happen when gyms are open again, if he's going to start up running again in the future, he'll do it more gradually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the example I like to give to people is there's a guy that ran 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 different States of America. Yeah. That's insane. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm not advocating anyone to do that, but like the low <laughs> tolerance that you can get to is phenomenal. Yeah. If you give the body the ability and the time to, to do what it can do. Um, so it's just that too much too soon, really. Yeah. Then, then we can go to things like technique, so you can increase your running quicker if you've got a, a good technique because your body can handle um, those forces, strength, endurance, all those kind of things, how well you're recovering between your runs. There's, yeah. there's lots and lots of things um, in it, but that ability to adapt is amazing. So like people can trust their body to be able to adapt if 
they give it the conditions to do so. hundred percent. Yeah. Sleeping four hours a night, not eating well, not getting enough water, psychologically stressed. It's going to be harder. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, all those things fall into, I guess, that kind of load management conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, you could be giving your body the same, like even if that runner had built up gradually to 30 Ks, or even if he'd started with 10 Ks or whatever, um, something that maybe physically his body was strong enough to do. If he was, like you said, if he was very underslept and overstressed and, you know, things are going on outside of that, he still might get injured or he still might experience pain as a result of that load, even if it wasn't something sort of specifically strength wise or endurance wise or something like that, that was being, that was the issue. Yeah, the, I mean, those things drop your capacity. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it changes exactly, the yeah. load to capacity equation. Um, yeah. But not in the pure running sense of the load, it just changes your capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And recovery, that I, we'll, we'll have to wrap up soon, but um, the recovery aspect I think is really interesting and that has has been getting a lot of attention lately um and i think you did a a, i think it was you who did a a big post on it somewhat recently maybe a couple of months ago but what would be what's your sort of key things when it comes to recovery that you focus on with with your athletes yeah so um i i think i did probably a series and i went through the the key ones um if you think of the food pyramid um the the bottom of the pyramid is um, the more important foods, um, and there's conjecture around that one anyway, but we'll just use yeah. that example. <laughs> um, the, the bottom for recovery is sleep, sleep and relaxation. So mm-hmm. relaxation being hanging out, reading a book, chatting with your friends, you know, watching a movie, whatever you like to do to relax. Um, and then getting sleep. So that kind of eight hours a night is the optimal minimum um, for sleep um, and good quality sleep. The next um, thing is nutrition and hydration. Um, so that's pre-exercise nutrition will affect your recovery afterwards, mm. but then also making sure you're replenishing afterwards. And that like, think of that, those two is almost like charging your battery. Yeah. You enough enough sleep and enough fuel. Um, the next three things on the pyramid and these have relatively similar evidence um uh active recovery so movement um water immersion um and compression um and you can put massage probably in that active recovery combo so water immersion being plunge pools um if you haven't got that in the bath shower so on and so forth um compression the the most basic level compressions like your tights um or compression garments and then you can go through to um the pump boots um and then water immersion gets you compression as well um so uh, for me the biggest thing about recovery then then the top of the pyramids kind of cryotherapy chambers um infrared saunas there's not a lot of evidence to support those but i think the biggest thing for recovery is those bottom two are the foundations so you're not going to get as much out of um wearing compression if you're sleeping poorly yeah yeah if you're not eating well those kind of things so if if you're going to focus on anything it's focused on the bottom two um and the 
the example that I've heard used before and I like to use is I think it's LeBron James, you know, really loves his cryotherapy chamber. That's great because he's probably sleeping eight hours. Yeah. He's eating really well. He, you know, he's he's doing all the things below it. So he the 1% or the 0.5% or whatever he gets out of that cryotherapy chamber actually makes a difference because he's doing everything else well. Yeah. Whereas if you're sleeping six hours a night, um, not eating well, not well hydrated, that 0.5% is like it's yeah it's, so, yeah it's not going to show up yeah and this this stuff's hard <laughs> sleeping eight hours a night like you've got to work to do that um, yeah yeah it takes preparation and planning and yeah, yeah like having good sleep health for, for some people they sleep really well and it's not an issue for, but for most people it requires effort um yeah. and but you'll see those those benefits i've heard stories of like olympic level athletes that have gone from you know eighth tenth in the world to the next Olympic cycle, winning a gold medal. And the, the biggest change they made was getting extra sleep. Mm, yeah. Um, and obviously they've developed an athlete and it's more years of training. There's other variables there, but you know, that, that getting a better sleep is actually really, really important because the better recovered you are, the more you can train. Yeah. Um, yeah. The better, the better capacity. Perform, yeah. Yeah. Perform in your training sessions and therefore get more benefit. So yeah. Yeah. The, the sleep and that is getting a lot of, um, I guess, airplay lately, which is great uh, in terms of like the books from Matthew Walker and Sean Stevenson yeah. and things like that, that are really sort of helping people see that. And I, and I know a lot of the elite, it's something that a lot of elite athletes and sports teams and everything are looking at now is really how to dial in that sleep, sleep health. And um, it seems to be a, a massive key for performance and for injury prevention. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, if you can take something away from this, make sure you're hitting the bottom of the the uh, recovery pyramid. We're going to call it. Doesn't yeah. not necessarily the food pyramid, but the the recovery pyramid is definitely something to be hitting those two at the bottom. If you can spend fifty dollars on some really good food, like really good whole food, nutritious, nutrient dense food, probably spend that over your cryotherapy chamber. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to put your, your money onto one of them, you. You'd pick the food, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, or or maybe yeah, get a get a really good nap or something if you if it's a time thing. But yeah, do do uh, focus on those those sort of key things and then and build out from there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that might be a good place to wrap up. Um, I think there there are actually a number of other things I'd love to dig into with you around sort of tendinopathies and and um, a bit more into feet and stuff. But I think it would be cool to do another another one in person once we can finally line up line up a podcast and we can do a, a round two and and explore a bit more in depth around the, those kind of topics yeah i'd love to sounds yeah. great that'd be great Definitely. awesome man well thanks again for coming on and uh thanks everyone for listening we'll we'll catch you next week thanks for having me and um i hope everyone got a little bit out of it yeah actually we'll uh i should just we'll we'll put some stuff in the show notes but for people to connect with you like if they're in melbourne and um uh you know want to come and see you or, or they want to check out your stuff what's the best place yeah so i, I work at melbourne cbd physio um that's the name of the clinic um i've got a website so it's nickreesphysio.com.au sweet um and then my instagram's nickrees sports physio um so if anyone wants to to follow what i want my content my posting then um they can do that as well but yeah, yeah you, can, you can get in touch with me through the website or book online at the clinic Awesome. All right, man. Sweet. Well, we'll, we'll chuck those in the show notes as well. So it's easy for people. And then, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll organize a, a catch up next time I'm down or you're up.
Sounds good. Thanks, James. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Have a good one.